Section 5 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Career of Alfred the Great a d eight seventy one through nine o one by thomas hughes part one alfred the great was the grandson of egbert king of the west saxons who during a reign of thirty-seven years consolidated in the saxon heptarchy the seven teutonic kingdoms into which anglia or england had been divided since the expulsion of the britons by the saxons about five eighty five in the latter part of egbert's reign the Danish Northmen appeared in the estuaries and rivers of England, sacking and burning the towns along their banks. Ethelwulf, who had been made King of Kent in 828, and succeeded his father Egbert as King of Anglia in 837, was early occupied in resisting and repelling attacks along his coasts, and by several successful pitched battles with the Danish invaders, obtained comparative freedom from their visits for eight years. Ethelwulf had married Osburga, the daughter of Oslach, his cupbearer, and had a daughter and five sons, of whom Alfred, the youngest, was born in 849. Part of Alfred's childhood was spent in Rome. At Compiègne and Verberi, among his playmates, were Charles, the boy king of Aquitaine, and Judith, children of the French king Charles the Bald. Judith, at fourteen years of age, became Ethelwulf's second wife and when the old king died two years later, to the amazement and scandal of the nation, married her stepson Ethelbald. According to Ethelwulf's will, Ethelbald became king of Wessex, Ethelbert, the second son, king of Kent, while Ethelred and Alfred were to be in the line of succession to Ethelbald. Ethelbald died in 860, and Judith returned to France, subsequently marrying Baldwin, Count of Flanders. Ethelbert, as successor, joined the kingdoms of Wessex and Kent. Alfred lived at the court of Ethelbert, and became noted for the intelligence and studious activities which were to make his future reign the conspicuous epoch in English history, so brilliantly commemorated a thousand years after his death in 901, in the millenary celebrated in Winchester and its neighborhood in 1901. Ethelbert died in 866, and was succeeded by Ethelred. In 868, Alfred married Elswitha, the daughter of Ethelred Musil of Mercia. Meanwhile, the Danes had resumed their predatory excursions, and in the winter of 870-71, through 71, Ethelred, accompanied by Alfred, attacked them at Reading, but after an initial victory was repulsed. Four days later, Ethelred and Alfred with their forces were attacked on Ashdown near Whitehorse Hill. After a heavy slaughter, the Danes were out to flight. The Danes, however, reinforced by Guthrum with new troops from over the sea, within a fortnight resumed offensive operations, and at Merton, two months later, Ethelred was mortally wounded. He died almost immediately after the battle, and, at the age of twenty-three, Alfred ascended the throne of his fathers, which was tottering, as it seemed, to its fall. Thomas Hughes the throne of the West Saxons was not an inheritance to be desired in the year 871, when Alfred succeeded his gallant brother. 
It descended on him, without comment or ceremony, as a matter of course. There was not even an assembly of the Witan to declare the succession as in ordinary times. With Guthrum and Hingwar in their entrenched camp at the confluence of the Thames and Kennet, and fresh bands of marauders sailing up the former river and constantly swelling the ranks of the pagan army during these summer months, there was neither time nor heart among the wise men of the West Saxons for strict adherence to the letter of the Constitution, however venerable. The succession had already been settled by the Great Council, when they formally accepted the provisions of Ethelwolf's will, that his three sons should succeed to the exclusion of the children of any one of them. The idea of strict hereditary succession has taken so strong a hold of us English in later times that it is necessary constantly to insist that our old English kingship was elective. Alfred's title was based on election, and so little was the idea of usurpation, or of any wrong done to the two infant sons of Ethelred connected with his accession, that even the lineal descendant of one of those sons, in his chronicle of that eventful year, does not pause to notice the fact that Ethelred left children. He is writing to his beloved cousin Matilda to instruct her in the things which he had received from ancient traditions, of the history of our race down to these two kings from whom we have our origin. The fourth son of Ethelwulf, he writes, was Ethelred, who, after the death of Ethelbert, succeeded to the kingdom, and was also my grandfather's grandfather. The fifth was Alfred, who succeeded after all the others to the whole sovereignty, and was your grandfather's grandfather, and so passes on to the next facts, without a word as to the claims of his own lineal ancestor, though he had paused in his narrative at this point for the special purpose of introducing a little family episode. When Alfred had buried his brother in the cloisters of Wimburne Minster, and had taken time to look out from his Dorsetshire resting place, and take stock of the immediate prospects and work which lay before him, we can well believe that those historians are right, who have told us that for the moment he lost heart and hope, and suffered himself to doubt whether God would, by his hand, deliver the afflicted nation from its terrible straits. In the eight pitched battles which we find by the Saxon Chronicle, Asser giving seven only, had already been fought with the pagan army, the flower of the youth of these parts of the West Saxon kingdom must have fallen. The other Teutonic kingdoms of the island, of which he was overlord, and so bound to defend, had ceased to exist except in name, or lay utterly powerless like Mercia, awaiting their doom. Kent, Sussex, and Surrey, which were now an integral part of the royal inheritance of his own family, were at the mercy of his enemies, and he without a hope of striking a blow for them. London had been pillaged and was in ruins. Even in Wessex proper, Berkshire and Hampshire, with parts of Wilts and Dorset, had been crossed and recrossed by marauding bands, in whose track only smoking ruins and dead bodies were found. The land was as of the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. These bands were, at this very moment, on foot, striking into new districts farther to the southwest than they had yet reached. If the rich lands of Somersetshire and Devonshire and the yet unplundered parts of Wilts and Dorset are to be saved, it must be by prompt and decisive fighting, and it is time for a king to be in the field. But it is a month from his brother's death before Alfred can gather men enough round his standard to take the field openly. 
Even then, when he fights, it is almost against his will, for his ranks are sadly thin, and the whole pagan army are before him, at Wilton, near Salisbury. The action would seem to have been brought on by the impetuosity of Alfred's own men, whose spirit was still unbroken, and their confidence in their young king enthusiastic. There was a long and fierce fight as usual, during the earlier part of which the Saxons had the advantage, though greatly outnumbered. But again we get glimpses of the old trap of a feigned flight and ambuscade into which they fell, and so again lose possession of the place of death, the ultimate test of victory. This year, says the Saxon Chronicle, nine general battles were fought against the army in the kingdom south of the Thames, besides which Alfred, the king's brother, and single aldermen and king's thanes oftentimes made attacks on them, which were not counted, and within the year one king and nine jarls, earls, were slain. Wilton was the last of these general actions, and not long afterward, probably in the autumn, Alfred made peace with the pagans, on condition that they should quit Wessex at once. They were probably allowed to carry off whatever spoils they may have been able to accumulate in their Reading camp, but I can find no authority for believing that Alfred fell into the fatal and humiliating mistake of either paying them anything or giving hostages or promising tribute. This young king, who as crown prince led the West Saxons up the slopes at Ashdown, when Bagsack, the two Sidrocks, and the rest were killed, and who has very much their own way of fighting, going into the clash of arms when the hard steel rings upon the high helmets, and the beasts of prey have ample spoil, like a veritable child of Odin, it is clearly one whom it is best to let alone, at any rate so long as easy plunder and rich lands are to be found elsewhere, without such poison-mad fighting for every herd of cattle and rood of ground. Indeed, I think the careful reader may trace from the date of Ashdown a decided unwillingness on the part of the Danes to meet Alfred, except when they could catch him at disastrous odds. They succeeded, indeed, for a time in overrunning almost the whole of his kingdom, in driving him in exile for a few wretched weeks to the shelter of his own forests. But whenever he was once fairly in the field, they preferred taking refuge in strong places, and offering treaties and hostages to the actual arbitrament of battle. So the pagan army quitted Reading, and wintered in 872 in the neighborhood of London, at which place they received proposals from Bored, king of the Mercians, Alfred's brother-in-law, and for a money payment pass him and his people contemptuously by for a time, making some kind of treaty of peace with them, and go northward into what has now become their own country. They winter in Lincolnshire, gathering fresh strength during 873 from the never-failing sources of supply across the narrow seas. Again, however, in this year of ominous rest, they renew their sham peace with poor Bured and his Mercians, who thus managed to tide it over another winter. In 874, however, the time has come. In the spring, the pagan army under the three kings, Guthrum, Asketal, and Amund, burst into Mercia. In this one only of the English Teutonic kingdoms, they find neither fighting nor suffering hero to cross their way, and leave behind for a thousand years the memory of a noble end, cut out there in some half-dozen lines of an old chronicler, but full of life and inspiration to this day for all Englishmen. The whole country is overrun and reduced under pagan rule without a blow struck, so far as we know, 
and within the year. Poor Bured, titular king of the Mercians, who is made believe to rule this English kingdom these twenty-two years, who in his time is marched with his father-in-law Ethelwolf across North Wales, has beleaguered Nottingham with his brothers-in-law, Ethelred and Alfred, six years back, not without show of manhood, sees for his part nothing for it under such circumstances but to get away as swiftly as possible, as many so-called kings have done before him and since. The West Saxon court is no place for him, quite other views of kingship prevailing in those parts. So the poor Bured breaks away from his anchors, leaving his wife, Ethelswitha even, in his haste, to take refuge with her brother. Or is it that the heart of the daughter of the race of Kurdic swells against leaving the land which her sires had won, the people they had planted there, in the moment of sorest need? In any case, Bored drifts away alone across into France, and so toward the winter to Rome. There he dies at once, about Christmas time, 874, of shame and sorrow, probably, or of a broken heart, as we say. At any rate, having this kingly gift left in him, that he cannot live and look on the ruin of his people, as St. Edmund's brother Edwold is doing in these same years, near a clear well at Carnelia in Dorsetshire, doing the hermit business there on bread and water. The English in Rome bury away poor Bured with all the honors in the Church of St. Mary's, to which the English schools rebuilt by his father-in-law Ethelwolf were attached. Ethelswitha visited, or started to visit, the tomb years later, we are told, in 888, when Mercia had risen to new life under her great brother's rule. Through these same months, Guthrum, Asketal, and the rest are wintering at Repton, after destroying there the cloister where the kingly line of Mercia lie, disturbing perhaps the bones of the great Alpha, whom Charlemagne had to treat as an equal. Neither of the pagan kings is inclined at this time to settle in Mercia. So, casting about what to do with it, they light on a certain foolish man, a king's thane, one Keowulf, and set him up as a sort of King Popinjay. From this Keowulf they take hostages for the payment of yearly tribute, to be wrung out of these poor Mercians on pain of dethronement, and for the surrender of the kingdom to them on whatever day they would have it back again. Foolish king's thanes, turned into king popinjays by pagans, and left to play at government on such terms, are not pleasant or profitable objects in such times as these of one thousand years since, or indeed at any times for the matter of that. So, let us finish with Keowulf, just noting that a year or two later his pagan lords seem to have found much of the spoil of monasteries and the pickings of earl and churl, of folkland and bookland, sticking to his fingers, instead of finding its way to their coffers. This was far from their meaning in setting him up in the high places of Mercia. So, they strip him and thrust him out, and he dies in beggary. This, then, is the winter's work of the great pagan army at Repton, Alfred watching them and their work doubtless with keen eye, not without misgivings too at their numbers, swollen again to terrible proportions since they sailed away down Thames after Wilton fight. It will take years yet before the gaps in the fighting strength of Wessex, left by those nine pitched battles and other smaller fights, will be filled by the crop of youths passing from childhood to manhood, an anxious thought, that, for a young king. The pagans, however, are not yet ready for another throw for Wessex. 
and so when mercia is sucked dry for the present and will no longer suitably maintain so great a host they again sever Halfdine, who would seem to have joined them recently takes a large part of the army away with him northward settling his headquarters by the river tyne he subdues all the land and oft-times spoils the picts and the strathclyde britons among other holy places in those parts Halfdine visits the island of lindisfarne hoping perhaps in his pagan soul not only to commit ordinary sacrilege in the holy places there which is everyday work for the like of him but even to lay impious hands on and to treat with indignity the remains of that holy man st cuthbert who has become in due course patron and guardian saint of hunters and of that scourge of pagans alfred the west saxon if such were his thoughts he is disappointed of his sacrilege for bishop eardolf and abbot eadred devout and strenuous persons having timely warning of his approach carry away the sainted body from lindisfarne and for nine years hide with it up and down the distracted northern counties now here now there moving that sacred treasure from place to place until this bitterness is overpassed and holy persons and things dead or living are no longer in danger and the bodies of saints may rest safely in fixed shrines the pagan armies and disorderly persons of all kinds having been converted or suppressed in the meantime for which good deed the royal alfred in whose calendar st cuthbert patron of huntsmen stands very high will surely warmly befriend them hereafter when he has settled his accounts with many persons and things from the time of this incursion of Halfdene, northumbria may be considered once more a settled state but a danish not a saxon one the rest and greater part of the army under guthrum Askital and Amund, on leaving Repton, strike southeast, through what was landlord Edmund's country, to Cambridge, where, in their usual heathen way, they pass the winter of 875. The downfall, exile, and death of his brother-in-law in 874 must have warned Alfred, if he had any need of warning, that no treaty could bind these foemen, and that he had nothing to look for but the same measure as soon as the pagan leaders felt themselves strong enough to meet it out to him and wessex in the following year we accordingly find him on the alert and taking action in a new direction these heathen pirates he sees fight his people at terrible advantage by reason of their command of the sea this enables them to choose their own point of attack not only along the sea coast but up every river as far as their light galleys can swim to retreat unmolested at their own time whenever the fortune of war turns against them to bring reinforcements of men and supplies to the scene of action without fear of hindrance his saxons have long since given up their seafaring habits they have become before all things an agricultural people drawing almost everything they need from their own soil the few foreign tastes they have are supplied by foreign traders however if wessex is to be made safe the sea kings must be met in their own element and so with what expenditure of patience and money and encouraging words and example we may easily conjecture the young king gets together a small fleet and himself takes command of it we have no clue to the point on the south coast where the admiral of twenty-five fights his first naval action but know only that in the summer of eight seventy five he is cruising with his fleet and meets seven tall ships of the enemy one of these he captures and the rest make off after a hard fight 
no small encouragement to the sailor king who has thus for another year saved saxon homesteads from devastation by fire and sword the second wave of invasion had now at last gathered weight and volume enough and broke on the king and people of the west saxons the year 876 was still young when the whole pagan army which had wintered at and about cambridge marched to their ships and put to sea guthrum was in command with the other two kings ancatel and amund as his lieutenants under whom was a host as formidable as that which had marched across mercia through forest and waste and sailed up the thames five years before to the assault of reading there must have been some few days of harassing suspense for we cannot suppose that alfred was not aware of the movements of his terrible foes probably his new fleet cruised off the south coast on the watch for them and all up the thames there were gloomy watchings and forebodings of a repetition of the evil days of eight seventy one but the suspense was soon over passing by the thames mouth and through dover straits the pagan fleet sailed and westward still past many tempting harbours and rivers mouths until they came off the coast of dorsetshire there they land at wareham and seize and fortify the neck of land between the rivers frome and piddle on which stood when they landed a fortress of the west saxons and a monastery of holy virgins fortress and monastery fell into the hands of the danes who set to work at once to throw up earthworks and otherwise fortify a space large enough to contain their army and all spoil brought in by marauding bands from this hitherto unplundered country this fortified camp was soon very strong except on the western side upon which alfred shortly appeared with a body of horsemen and other such troops as could be gathered hastily together the detachment of the pagans who were already out pillaging the whole neighbourhood fell back apparently before him concentrating on the wareham camp before its outworks alfred paused he is too experienced a soldier now to risk at the outset of a campaign such a disaster as that which he and ethelred had sustained in their attempt to assault the camp at reading in eight seventy one he is just strong enough to keep the pagans within their lines but has no margin to spare so he sits down before the camp but no battle is fought neither he nor guthrum caring to bring matters to that issue soon negotiations are commenced and again a treaty is made on this occasion alfred would seem to have taken special pains to bind his faithless foe all the holy relics which could be procured from holy places in the neighborhood were brought together that he himself and his people might set the example of pledging themselves in the most solemn manner known to christian men then a holy ring or bracelet smeared with the blood of beasts sacrificed to woden was placed on a heathen altar upon this guthrum and his fellow kings and earls swore on behalf of the army that they would quit the king's country and give hostages such an oath had never been sworn by danish leader on english soil before it was the most solemn known to them they would seem also to have sworn on alfred's relics as an extra proof of their sincerity for this once and their hostages from among the most renowned men in the army were duly handed over alfred now relaxed his watch even if he did not withdraw with the main body of his army leaving his horse to see that the terms of the treaty were performed and to watch the wareham camp until the departure of the pagan host but neither oath on sacred ring nor the risk to their hostages 
weighed with Guthrum and his followers when any advantage was to be gained by treachery. They steal out of the camp by night, surprise and murder the Saxon horsemen, seize the horses, and strike across the country, the mounted men leading, to Exeter, but leaving a sufficient garrison to hold Wareham for the present. They surprise and get possession of the western capital, and there settle down to pass the winter. Rollo, fiercest of the Vikings, is said by Asser to have passed the winter with them in their Exeter quarters on his way to Normandy, but whether the great robber himself were here or not, it is certain that the channel swarmed with pirate fleets, who could put in to Wareham or Exeter at their discretion, and find a safe stronghold in either place, from which to carry fire and sword through the unhappy country. Alfred had vainly endeavoured to overtake the march to Exeter in the autumn of 876, and failing in the pursuit, had disbanded his own troops as usual, allowing them to go to their own homes until the spring. Before he could be afoot again in the spring of 877, the main body of the pagans at Exeter had made that city too strong for any attempt at assault, so the king and his troops could do no more than beleaguer it on the land side, as he had done at Wareham. But Guthrum could laugh at all the efforts of his great antagonist, and wait in confidence the sure disbanding of the Saxon troops at harvest time, so long as his ships held the sea. Supplies were running short in Exeter, but the X was open, and communications going on with Wareham. It is arranged that the camp there shall be broken up, and the whole garrison, with their spoil, shall join headquarters. One hundred and twenty Danish war galleys are freighted, and beat down channel, but are baffled by adverse winds for nearly a month. They and all their supplies may be looked for any day in the X when the wind changes. Alfred, from his camp before Exeter, sends to his little fleet to put to sea. He cannot himself be with them as in their first action, for he knows well that Guthrum will seize the first moment of his absence to sally from Exeter, break the Saxon lines, and scatter his army in roving bands over Devonshire, on their way back to the eastern kingdom. The Saxon fleet puts out, manned itself, as some say, partly with sea robbers, hired to fight their own people. However manned, it attacks bravely a portion of the pirates. But a mightier power than the fleet fought for Alfred at this crisis. First a dense fog, and then a great storm came on, bursting on the south coast, with such fury that the pagans lost no less than one hundred of their chief ships off Swanage, as mighty a deliverance perhaps for England, though the memory of it is nearly forgotten, as that which began in the same seas seven hundred years later, when Drake and the sea kings of the sixteenth century were hanging on the rear of the Spanish Armada along the Devon and Dorset coasts, while the beacons blazed up all over England and the whole nation flew to arms. The destruction of the fleet decided the fate of the siege of Exeter. Once more, negotiations are opened by the pagans. Once more, Alfred, fearful of driving them to extremities, listens, treats, and finally accepts oaths and more hostages, acknowledging, probably in sorrow to himself, that he can for the moment do no better. And on this occasion, Guthrum, being caught far from home and without supplies or ships, keeps the peace well moving, as we conjecture, watched jealously by Alfred, on the shortest line across Devon and Somerset to some ford in the Avon, and so across into Mercia, where he arrives during harvest and billets his army on Keowulf, 
camping them for the winter about the city of Gloucester. Here they run up huts for themselves and make some pretense of permanent settlement on the Severn, dividing large tracts of land among those who cared to take them. The campaigns of 876 through 877 are generally looked upon as disastrous ones for the Saxon arms, but this view is certainly not supported by the chroniclers. It is true that both at Wareham and Exeter the pagans broke new ground and secured their position, from which no doubt they did sore damage in the neighboring districts, but we can trace in those years none of the old ostentatious daring and thirst for battle with Alfred. Whenever he appears, the pirate bands draw back at once into their strongholds, and, exhausted as great part of Wessex must have been by the constant strain, the West Saxons show no signs yet of falling from their gallant king. If he can no longer collect in a week such an army as fought at Ashdown, he can still, without much delay, bring to his side a sufficient force to hem the pagans in and keep them behind their ramparts. But the nature of the service was telling sadly on the resources of the kingdom south of the Thames. To the Saxons there came no new levies, while from the north and east of England, as well as from over the sea, Guthrum was ever drawing to his standard wandering bands of sturdy northmen. The most important of these reinforcements came to him from an unexpected quarter this autumn. We have not heard for some years of Hubba, the brother of Hingwar, the younger of the two Vikings who planned and led the first great invasion in 868. Perhaps he may have resented the arrival of Guthrum and other kings in the following years, to whom he had to give place. Whatever may have been the cause, he seems to have gone off on his own account, carrying with him the famous Raven Standard, to do his appointed work in these years on other coasts under its ominous shade. This war flag, which they call Raven, was a sacred object to the Northmen. When Hingwar and Hubba had heard of the death of their father, Regnar Lodbrog, and had resolved to avenge him, while they were calling together their followers, their three sisters in one day wove for them this war flag, in the midst of which was portrayed the figure of a raven. Whenever the flag went before them into battle, if they were to win the day, the sacred raven would rouse itself and stretch its wings. But if defeat awaited them, the flag would hang round its staff, and the bird remain motionless. This wonder had been proved in many a fight, so the wild pagans who fought under the standard of Ragnar's children believed. It was a power in itself, and Hubba and a strong fleet were with it. They had appeared in the Bristol Channel in this autumn of 877, and had ruthlessly slaughtered and spoiled the people of South Wales. Here they proposed to winter, but as the country is wild mountain for the most part, and the people very poor, they will remain no longer than they can help. Already a large part of the army about Gloucester is getting restless. The story of their march from Devonshire, through rich districts of Wessex yet unplundered, goes round among the newcomers. Guthrum has no power, probably no will, to keep them to their oaths. In the early winter, a joint attack is planned by him and Hubba on the West Saxon territory. By Christmas, they are strong enough to take the field, and so, in midwinter, shortly after Twelfth Night, the camp at Gloucester breaks up, and the army stole away to Chippenham, recrossing the Avon once more into Wessex under Guthrum. The fleet, after a short delay, crosses to the Devonshire coast under Hubba in 30 warships. 
and now at last the courage of the west saxons gives way the surprise is complete wiltshire is at the mercy of the pagans who occupying the royal burg of chippenham as headquarters overrun the whole district drive many of the inhabitants beyond the sea for want of the necessaries of life and reduce to subjection all those that remain alfred is at his post but for the moment can make no head against them his own strong heart and trust in god are left him and with them and a scanty band of followers he disappears into the forest of selwood which then stretched away from the confines of wiltshire for thirty miles to the west east somerset now one of the fairest and richest of english counties was then for the most part thick wood and tangled swamp but miserable as the lodging is it is welcome for the time to the king in the first months of eight seventy eight selwood forest holds in its recesses the hope of england it is at this point as is natural enough that romance has been most busy and it has become impossible to disentangle the actual facts from monkish legend and saxon ballad in happier times alfred was in the habit himself of talking over the events of his wandering life pleasantly with his courtiers and there is no reason to doubt that the foundation of most of the stories still current rests on those conversations of the truth-loving king noted down by bishop asser and others the best known of these is of course the story of the cakes in the depths of the saxon forests there were always a few neat herds and swine herds scattered up and down living in rough huts enough we may be sure and occupied with the care of the cattle and herds of their masters among these in selwood was a neat herd of the king a faithful man to whom the secret of alfred's disguise was entrusted and who kept it even from his wife to this man's hut the king came one day alone and sitting himself down by the burning logs on the hearth began mending his bows and arrows the neat herd's wife had just finished her baking and having other household matters to attend to confided her loaves to the king a poor tired-looking body who might be glad of the warmth and could make himself useful by turning the batch and so earn his share while she got on with other business but alfred worked away at his weapons thinking of anything but the good housewife's batch of loaves which in due course were not only done but rapidly burning to a cinder at this moment the neat herd's wife comes back and flying to the hearth to rescue the bread cries out drat the man never to turn the loaves when you see them burning i's warrant you ready enough to eat them when they are done but besides the king's faithful neatherd, whose name is not preserved, there are other churls in the forest, who must be Alfred's comrades just now, if he will have any. And even here he has an eye for a good man, and will lose no opportunity to help one to the best of his power. Such a one he finds in a certain swineherd called Deanwolf, whom he gets to know, a thoughtful Saxon man minding his charge there in the oak woods, the rough churl or thrall, we know not which, has great capacity, as Alfred soon finds out, and desire to learn. So the king goes to work upon Deanwolf under the oak trees, when the swine will let him, and is well satisfied with the results of his teaching and the progress of his pupil. But in those miserable days the commonest necessaries of life were hard enough to come by for the king and his few companions, and for his wife and family, who soon joined him in the forest, even if they were not with him from the first. The poor foresters cannot maintain them, nor are this band of exiles the men to live on the poor, 
so alfred and his comrades are soon out foraging on the borders of the forest and getting what subsistence they can from the pagans or from the christians who had submitted to their yoke so we may imagine them dragging on life till near easter when a gleam of good news comes tip from the west to gladden the hearts and strengthen the arms of these poor men in the depths of selwood end of section five recording by colleen mcmahon